Professor Swartz, Joe, thanks so much for sitting down with me uh, in your busy schedule. It's a great pleasure for me and also a great honor to have someone with your stature uh, share your thoughts with our audience today. Um, in our interview today, I'd like to uh, zoom in a little bit on fake news and also misinformation and disinformation. And before we, we dive down into the facts and perhaps the psychology behind it, uh, I'd like to ask you if you could describe those terms for us. Well, thanks very much for uh, uh, having me on. And um, for sure, uh, it's a good way to start to take a look at those terms. This is something that I've been dealing with for many, many years. And uh, basically, it was the, the reason that our office here at McGill was founded uh, 21 years ago uh, with a mandate of separating sense from nonsense and, and uh, clarifying uh, the nuances of, of information and what is fake and what is this and what is uh, misinformation. <clears throat> Well, fake uh, information or fake news is something that has absolutely no uh, facts behind it. Hmm. Um, I'll, I'll pick on a very current example uh, is this uh, movement in the US, which is unfortunately is spreading to, to Europe as well, the QAnon movement, hmm. uh, which you know uh, hypothesizes that there's some sort of deep state headed by, by Hillary Clinton or George Soros or President Obama or some Hollywood celebrity. And that uh, these uh, is, a, is a, a mix of, of uh, pedophiles mm -hmm. uh, who are bent on uh, stealing children so that they can suck their blood and from the blood remove a compound called adrenochrome, which uh, they claim is, is rejuvenating. And that uh, this operation is being run from the basement of a pizza parlor in, in, in Washington, where these uh, children are kept hidden. Mm -hmm. I mean, one would think that that such nonsense would, would have no longevity whatsoever, but unbelievably, it has a huge number of adherents. Mm -hmm. This, uh, I would say, is, is total fake news. There's absolutely nothing to this at all. Yeah. And yet people uh, believe this. <laughs> um, misinformation is uh, information that, that is just uh, wrong, but in, in more of the scientific vein. Mm. Um, I would say that you know, when uh, uh, the anti-vax people put out information about uh, possible connection between autism and and, uh, and the MMR vaccine, mm -hmm. that's misinformation because it is just, it's not uh, backed up by any kind of, of, of fact. Mm -hmm. But at least it is it is in the realm of science. It is something that has been investigated. You know? uh, disinformation mm -hmm. is misinformation that is put out there purposely uh, okay. where 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 the people who are putting it out know that it is wrong mm -hmm. and uh, I, I don't think that there's any better examples of that than trump <laughs> uh, you know where it is not possible that he actually believes the stuff that he he spews and uh, you know all of the stuff now about the election and about the fraud in the election mm -hmm. i mean this is just disinformation because uh, the proponents of it uh, know that this just is not so mm -hmm. I, mean, I think it's just not possible that all of those republicans should should be so crazy as to be promoting this so mm -hmm. that is disinformation mm -hmm. And of course, we see these in, in every aspect of, of, of life, you know, it's in politics, it's uh, also in science. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have that distinction between those those types of terms. And as you say, it's it's uh, very frequent in in politics nowadays. But it's not only politics. It's it's um, in my view permeating in all uh, sectors of society nowadays, including agriculture. What what's certainly, certainly and uh, it is kind of a distrust of science that has emerged mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, it's hard to know exactly how that has happened. Mm. Uh, I think possibly because uh, people expect too much of science to be delivered, especially in, in the health area. And, uh, you know, they, they look around and they see all of the wonderful things that science has done. We've, we've gone to the moon. Mm. You know, we have cell phones, we have computers, which do incredible things. And then they say, well, how come we can't cure cancer? Uh, of course, I, I would suggest that curing cancer is a far bigger challenge than going to the moon. Mm -hmm. And there are very good reasons why, you know, we can't, quote, cure all, all cancer. But mm -hmm. uh, whenever science leaves an opening like that, uh, the quacks, of course, will rush in and fill that void. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're seeing. This is why you have all of the, you know, these the fake therapies out there. And uh, I'm sure you, you you also see this in the whole in the area of agriculture, when uh, there are uh, solutions that you know that are lacking because of course we don't have a solution to all the problems. That's when all the the nonsense comes in because uh, they don't rely on on evidence. They can just say whatever they want to say, and there are enough people who who believe it. Yeah. In, uh, and agriculture, of course, is uh, obviously a very complex business, and it relies on a lot of chemicals. And uh, uh, probably there's no greater class of chemicals, you know, with more controversy than the pesticides. So, mm -hmm. so in agriculture, there's a, there's a lot of misinformation uh, that is promoted by um, environmental groups, uh, where they will cherry pick the the science. And, you know, these days there is so much being published. Uh, there are five scientific papers published every minute or every single day. Wow. So much being published that you can find, quote, evidence to back up almost anything that you want to back up. Yeah. Uh, there are journals, of course, that will accept virtually anything to be published. And so, you know, you can pick and choose and back up anything. So if you want to show that uh, uh, pesticides are, are dangerous and that, you know, uh, glyphosate is deadly, you'll, you'll find uh, papers that back that up. But uh, essentially, in, in science, what we do is we don't cherry pick. We don't look at one single study or one single paper. We look at everything that is published and then, to, then come to some sort of uh, consensus and always look at the risk benefit ratio i mean let's face it as you know as far as pesticides are concerned uh, obviously there are risks and pesticides are designed to kill right that's what pesticides are uh, they're designed to kill weeds they're designed to kill insects yeah. so it certainly is not an outrageous uh, uh, thesis that there might be some risk uh, in it for humans mm -hmm. but that's why we do studies and uh, numbers matter it's always a question of how much? Uh, 500 years ago, Paracelsus told us that only those makes the poison. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is the cornerstone of toxicology. So it's not a question of, uh, you know, whether pesticides are safe or dangerous. Uh, 
chemicals should not be looked at as safe or dangerous. There, there are safe and dangerous ways to use chemicals. Mm -hmm. So, of course, pesticides can be used inappropriately. Uh, there, there are thousands and thousands of people, unfortunately, who commit uh, suicide every year using pesticides because they're quite readily available. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, it's, it's not the pesticide that makes that decision. It's people who make that, those decisions. And, you know, I keep coming back to the numbers matter business. Uh, you know, some environmental organizations will, will uh, uh, every year put out lists of which uh, foods are the most pesticide laden and therefore which should be avoided. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what we have to ask is exactly what pesticides were found and how much mm -hmm. and how does that amount compare to what we know is toxic? That is, how does it compare to the acceptable daily intake? Because the presence of a chemical does not equate to the presence of risk. You have to know exactly what the, the conditions are. And uh, when you look at you know, some of this data that is put out by these uh, organizations like the Environmental Working Group in, in, in Washington uh, with their dirty dozen, Mm -hmm. And actually, when you take a look at the total amount of pesticide found on, on those dirty dozen fruits and vegetables, it is below the acceptable daily intake. Yeah. And when what they emphasize is how many different pesticides are found in, in, on a particular crop. That's not the important thing. Uh, it's how much of each one and what the, the total is and does the total exceed, you know, what... what uh, we think is a, is a safe level. Mm -hmm. uh, they, it's very easy to scare people by telling them that uh, an apple can have 36 pesticide residues, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which is true because there are some 36 uh, pesticides that are registered for use on apples. Mm -hmm. But no apple will have 36 different pesticides. I mean, that's not how farmers work. No. Uh, farmers will determine exactly which pesticides to use and how much. So there may be a couple of pesticide residues on, on apples in, you know, in the practical sense. And although it's true that there may be 36 that are allowed, you won't find them on an apple. And yet the message that they kind of transmit is that when you're eating apples, you're exposing yourself to all of these uh, pesticides. Mm -hmm. so yeah. Delving into the facts is really uh, what we need. It's, uh, you know, science is not based on hearsay, not mm -hmm. based on cherry pick data. It is based on scrutinizing all of the evidence that is, uh, is out there. Mm -hmm. And admittedly, it isn't always easy to do that, especially in the area of pesticides. You know, it's, it's easy to determine if something has a, an acute effect, mm -hmm. right? You, you give it to your rats and if they keel over, you know that there's a problem. Yeah. But what is of greater concern are, are the chronic effects, you know, low dose exposure over, over decades. Mm -hmm. Those kind of things are, are very, very difficult to determine. And that's why we can never say that something is safe under all conditions all the time. It's always a question of, do the benefits outweigh the risks? Yeah. Because there's a risk with everything that we do in life, there is a risk. Yes, there is a risk with using agrochemicals, but the fact is that we have pretty soon 9 billion people in the world to feed. And uh, if we don't judiciously use agrochemicals, they're gonna go hungry. Absolutely, yeah. Um so this this whole uh, problem of misinformation and disinformation is that is that only a modern one or is it of all ages i i think it's uh, it's been with us uh, always uh, 
uh, charlatans and quacks have always been uh, with us. Uh, it's just that today, this kind of information spreads more easily. It spreads mm-hmm. like wildfire, right? Thanks to the internet. I mean, the, inter- in the internet is, is a, a double-edged sword. It's it's wonderful when you know how to use it. I mean, I you know I haven't been to a library in years. I mean, why should I go to the library to, mm-hmm. with a few keystrokes that comes to me, yeah. right? Uh, but uh, there's of course also a tremendous amount of nonsense that is spread on the internet. And unless you have some expertise in science, it's very difficult to. Uh, know the distinction because uh, begrudgingly i have to admit that uh, the the charlatans and and the quacks are very good at what they do uh, they know how to get attention uh, they know how to twist the facts and uh, scientists in general are are not accustomed to having to deal with the public and to translate their uh, their research uh, in simple terms for the public and so, you know, there, uh, there's an advantage that uh, all of these, you know, what I don't, I'm not sure what to call them, the, you know, the anti-science movement, they, mm-hmm. they have an advantage because they actually work at how to uh, produce their information. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they, they have conferences on how to get attention, on how to make their websites go to the top of the list on, on, on Google. Mm-hmm. And this is just something that is foreign to the scientific community. You know, we just don't think, uh, don't think like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you hinted to it already a little bit in the beginning, but how come that so many people so easily fall for misinformation or disinformation? Because I think it tends to be very seductive. <clears throat> you know, it's uh, it's much more attractive to think that you can treat cancer by eating apricot pits than that you have to undergo radiation, chemotherapy, or surgery. Perhaps, yeah. So uh, they often provide simple solutions to complex problems. Mm. And that's that's a very seductive thing. And uh, then there's also the, the notion that, that people need scapegoats. When something goes wrong, you want to find a reason for it. Uh, and uh, pesticides, for example, are, are very, very good scapegoats because they are found everywhere, you know, uh, in, in our life. And they can be toxic under certain conditions. So it's very easy to point fingers at substances that do have some degree of toxicity when you forget the fact that chemicals can be used safely or dangerously. And it's all a question of how how they are used, not whether or not they are used. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, yes, uh, I fully agree. And I think that uh, a major role is, is probably um, placed on the shoulders of, of policymakers, of our politicians. So let's uh, place you yeah. in an imaginative situation where you're in front of a room of, full of, of politicians, let's say EU politicians, uh, and, and the topic is uh, science and agriculture. What, what would you tell them? That we go by evidence. Mm-hmm. We go by the published literature, not by, by hearsay. Mm-hmm. And uh, it takes a great deal of work to tease out what is the proper uh, information? And uh, politicians don't have that expertise, so they have to know who to rely on. So it's very important to know 
who to rely on. And generally, uh, academic scientists who work for universities, uh, scientists who work for regulatory agencies and, and, and governments, Health Canada, FDA, and European equivalents, those generally are, are reliable. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, every scientific paper, whether it's no matter what journal it's uh, you know, seen uh, in, uh, has to be looked at as just one piece of a large puzzle. And we have to look at everything that is out there and piece it together before we come to some sort of, uh, of conclusion. And admittedly, it's, it's a very difficult task with the so-called environmental chemicals, whether we're talking about the perfluoro compounds, which are you know, uh, being looked at very seriously now, whether we're talking about food additives. It's a complex business to be able to come to some sort of uh, conclusion. Mm -hmm. And it needs a lot of experts who will you know, put their brains together and uh, tease out all of the relevant uh, information. So what the, the politicians have to, to know is who is reliable and, and who is not. Uh, what is the information that they can base their uh, conclusions on? So they, they have to have expert advisors. And uh, it's, uh, it's always a question of, of who you surround yourself with and uh, whether or not they really are the right people to tease out all of the information. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I read the other day that a part of the problem was that the whole uh, agricultural knowledge and information system was uh, had become privatized and, and there was less of a role for the public sector of sharing that agricultural information and knowledge and that had contributed also to, to, the, to this uh, where we are now. I think certainly there's uh, some there's some basis for that. I mean let's face it uh, the actual agricultural, industry is a business. I mean, pesticide manufacturers want to sell more pesticides, mm -hmm. right? So obviously they, they are going to promote the studies that favor their, their point of view. Mm -hmm. Whereas academic scientists and, and government scientists tend to be more balanced. Mm -hmm. But uh, much of the information that, uh, that comes out uh, does come from vested interests. And that always is, is a a difficult situation, no matter what area you you look at, and uh, I know that you know for myself when when I have a, a question that that comes up, I mean it takes me days and days and days to to dig down and you know find all of the relevant uh, research and then see you know just who said it and why they said it and who funded it. I mean, I whenever I, I look at a paper, I always first you know go to the end and, and see who funded that study. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that just because there is some vested interest doesn't mean that the data is unreliable. Mm -hmm. uh, however, what uh, is, is more concerning is uh, not the data that is published by vested interest, but the data that is not published. You know, and uh, this is, this is, uh, is always a, a, a challenge is uh, when you're looking at people who stand to make money from the products that they, they produce. Uh, the research that they do, if it turns out to be negative, that is not going to be published, mm -hmm. right? So they'll publish the positive research, but not the negative. Whereas yeah. uh, when you're looking at uh, academic science, you're more likely to see a much more balanced uh, view. Mm -hmm. so it, 
it's it's a complex world and you know there are no no simple solutions nobody has a monopoly on the truth mm-hmm. and nobody can predict the future you know uh, it's uh, yeah. things happen sometimes things are done uh, with uh, all the right intentions and then it turns out that uh, you go astray for example uh, who could have ever predicted back in the 1930s when uh, uh, refrigerators were using ammonia and sulfur dioxide as a refrigerant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a dangerous thing. You had a leakage, you know, they, both of these are, are toxic in your, you know, you have leakage in your mm-hmm. kitchen. That was a problem. So then they were replaced by the freons, mm-hmm. which were very good refrigerants. They were inert. You know, they worked very well in your refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Who could have predicted that 50 years in the future, we would find freons in the uh, in the atmosphere destroying the ozone layer. Exactly. I mean, how could you have even thought of such thing like like that, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, just just because um, things like that happen, it doesn't mean that that scientists were callous uh, or you know incompetent. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> this is the way of science. It's a self-correcting discipline. Absolutely. As we learn more and more. Uh, we focus in more and more on what is true and and what is false. Mm. But it is part and parcel of science that mistakes will be made along the way. But the difference is that it's self-correcting, whereas the quacks and the charlatans will spout the same thing over and over again. Mm. Uh, uh, The same myths, homeopathy has been with us for over 200 years with the same silliness being spouted that that non-existent molecules can cure existing diseases. Okay. So science marches on, uh, it incorporates the facts, it interpret, interprets them. But yes, there, there are mistakes that are made. Uh, the, the analogy that I, I often use is that science is like a race towards a finish line, but the finish line always keeps receding from you. You never quite get there, but you're always getting closer and closer. Mm-hmm. And look, I mean, look, look what uh, we have seen with the evolution in in, uh, in agriculture. I mean, the pesticides that are being used now are used in much much smaller amounts. They will cover much much larger acreage in, in smaller doses than than what we used even 20 years ago. And uh, now there's spot spraying with drones, like and robots are are are, are doing the weeding on, mm-hmm. on some farms. Uh, and of course, we've had genetic modification, which the benefits greatly outweigh the risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you have a large anti-GMO movement. Most of most of them have no idea what GMOs are. Mm-hmm. I tell you that's from experience because mm-hmm. you know I deal with the public a great deal. Mm-hmm. And so, in in my lectures, you know, where, which I give it all over the place, I I often have people in the audience who are you know anti-GMO. Mm-hmm. And, so you get into discussion with them. And the first question that I, I usually ask before getting into the discussion is, tell me what is genetic modification and which crops are actually produced through a genetic modification? And you know what happens at that time? They, they mostly uh, become silent hmm. uh, because they, they don't have an idea of, of what it is. It's, it's just that they've been fed this information from the activists that this is something that is bad. It's you know undermining our, our life. They, they think that, that uh, uh, these giant strawberries that we have are genetic modified. I've had people come up to me uh, you know, in a supermarket with this giant strawberry 
as if I were somehow responsible for this, you know, and say, look, this is what genetic modification does. You have these beautiful life strawberries. They taste like nothing and they're poisoning us. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, there are no genetic modified strawberries on the market. Yeah. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. They are, they are genetic modified through traditional crossbreeding techniques. Sure. There are no genetically modified strawberries through genetic engineering, through recombinant DNA technology, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, those giant strawberries have been genetically modified uh, through crossbreeding to make them large and attractive. And it's true that they taste lousy because they're mostly uh, water, but they have nothing to do with genetic modification technology that is carried out through recombinant DNA. DNA. And uh, when you ask them, well, what crops are genetic modified? And they think everything is. The fact is that it's very few. It's canola, it's corn, it's it's cotton, it's soy, mm-hmm. uh, sugar beets. That's about it, mm-hmm. right? But people think that everything is genetically modified mm-hmm. and that genetic modification introduces some kind of, of poison and that these genes get into our body and they're going to genetically modify us. I mean, I, I've heard every possible ridiculous you know, argument against genetic modification from people who have no idea about what this technology is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had similar discussions with, uh, in my case, it was big grapes that people thought was uh, GM. And of course, there are no, uh, no GM. Right. So I, I'm very well, uh, I'm very well aware of the example. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, there's no cognizance of, of dosage, which is, is so critical. Uh, there was... Um, Quite a lot of publicity, I, I, I guess, last year. Well, there's always a lot of publicity about glyphosate. That this seems to be the lightning rod for all the activists uh, about residues of glyphosate found in, in food. Now, it is true that you will find residues because these days we can find them. And, uh, you know, I, I, I often blame my uh, analytical chemist colleagues for this. Uh, because of their sophisticated technology, they can now find things down to parts per trillion. Hmm. That's incredibly small. A part per trillion is the width of a credit card in the distance from the Earth to the moon. Unbelievable. And we can find this. So yeah, if you analyze your Cheerios, you will find some residue of glyphosate, or in fact, probably of numerous other pesticides if you care to, to look for them. But The question isn't whether it is there or not there. The question is, is it there in any amount that approaches what has been determined to be the acceptable daily intake? And the fact is that it is far, far below that. I mean, it's trace amounts of glyphosate that you might find in your your cereal. Mm -hmm. There's far better reasons to, to avoid eating some of these commercial cereals, and that's the high sugar content. That's much more worrisome than any kind of uh, uh, glyphosate residue in there. So numbers matter, but people just don't have a feel for numbers. They, they, they don't know the difference between a PPB and a PPT. It's all the same. It's a question of is it there or is it not there? Mm-hmm. But of course, this is not the way that... Um, that science functions. Mm-hmm. And yes, I mean, we use chemicals in the environment, you are going to find them, because we can find things down to parts per trillion. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is very unlikely that a part per trillion will have any kind of uh, negative uh, effect. So, you know, I, I always emphasize numbers matter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, then they come back, well, yeah, but how do you know this acceptable daily intake, you know, that that has been properly determined? 
Well, then you go on and describe how, how you do this. Uh, and you obviously you do it in animals because ethically you cannot do such studies in, in humans. So you have an animal and you start giving it the suspect chemical and increasing mm -hmm. doses until you trigger some kind of an effect. And you cut back to a dose where there is no effect. So that's the maximum dose that causes no effect in an animal. And then for safety, you divide that by a factor of 100 for humans to get the acceptable daily intake for humans. Mm -hmm. So yes, I mean, it is an educated guess, but it's an educated guess based on some very significant science that is done in animals. Mm -hmm. uh, it's true that, that you know, the human is not a giant rat, although there are some exceptions to that, but by and large, this is true. But we have to rely on these animal experiments. So the, the ADI, the acceptable daily intake that, that emerges, I think is very reliable. And if we have uh, a residue in a food that is one one hundredth of the ADI, which already has a hundred fold safety factor built into it, then I don't think it should be a cause for worry. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think that's uh, then the perfect uh, wrap up for today. Numbers matter and uh, the, the evidence is uh, what we should look at. Absolutely. Uh, life is on evidence, right? Yeah. Uh, but it is also a question of knowing where to find that evidence and what evidence is real and what is reliable. Mm -hmm. Because often some of the misinformation will be presented as if it were based on evidence. Well, that's all what we have for today. I thank you so much, Joe, uh, for sitting down with us and, uh, and sharing your thoughts. Okay, thank you very much.